Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have a pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is God's word. Thank you, Eric, for jumping in, reading scripture for us this morning. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Psalm 90 as we pray together today. Father God, as we open Psalm 90 this morning, we ask that you would use it to open our eyes that we might see the truth, that we might see your glory, that we might see our frailty, and Lord, that our lives would be affected for having seen these things. We pray that you would be at work in our midst this morning, that you would draw us close to you with great joy that stands for all generations. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Marcus Aurelius and Benjamin Franklin and Steve Jobs are not often talked about together, but they have something important in common. Aurelius lived during the second century as the ruler of the Roman Empire at the very height of its power. Ben Franklin was a founding father of the United States, of course, an inventor, a statesman, a philosopher, and a printer. And Steve Jobs founded Apple Computers, invented the smartphone, became a billionaire, and brought the world into the digital age. But despite the vast, vast, immeasurable, beyond considering the, the cultural differences that exist between these three men, they agreed on at least one thing, and each of them spent, spent time writing about it. All three of them knew that life is short and believed that because life is short, we should live accordingly. In his personal journal, Aurelius made a note to himself about how quickly his own life might end one day. He said, your life might end right now. Let that determine what you say and do and think. Franklin, in his autobiography, advised his readers to not squander time, for that is the stuff that life is made of. He saw time as a precious 
non-renewable resource to be used well. And Steve Jobs, at a graduation speech at Stanford, told the audience that remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. He knew that the inevitability and the eminence of death ought to shape his perspective in a meaningful way. But all three of these great thinkers were only saying what Psalm 90 said first, that life is short, and knowing that changes everything. It's a, it's a lesson that we, all, all of us, struggle to internalize. As young children, we are blissfully ignorant of the fact that death is a reality for all of us, but at some point, that truth catches up with us, usually when someone that we love passes away. We face the grim reality that nothing here lasts forever, and we hate it. We hate realizing that. We fight against it, and we delay it for as long as possible, and we scorn the sadness that it burdens us with. But it is ultimately a curse that we cannot escape, so when it casts its shadow over our lives, we weep and we grieve instead. That's exactly what Moses does here in Psalm 90. But he goes one step further than Marcus Aurelius or Ben Franklin or Steve Jobs. When he faced the fact that our lives passed by so quickly, he turned to God, who he knows is not bound by the passage of time, for answers and for hope. It was written, Psalm 90, during a very low point in Moses' life when he and the people of Israel were out wandering in the desert. Like some of the other psalms that we've looked at this summer, this one is a psalm of lament. It's a poem of sorrow having to do with something that has happened in the life of the author. But this one is different than most of the other lament psalms. In most of them, there's some adversary that has caused suffering and hardship, and the author of the psalm is asking for justice and for deliverance. But Moses is not lamenting the attacks of an enemy. He is full of sorrow over the choices that the people of Israel have made and the situation that they have put themselves in. And the deliverance that he's praying for is God's mercy for them, for this wayward nation. But he does so with a hopeful confidence that even though these people have acted foolishly, God will remain faithful to them. So he opens up the psalm with praise by saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. It's an important choice of words. Moses knows that from the very beginning, Israel has been a people drifting from place to place. When God first called Abram, the forefather of all the Israelites, it was with a command to leave his home and to settle in a new land, the place that God would give to him and to his descendants. And so Abram packed his bags and he went along with his family. And for a few generations, they lived in the land and the family grew, but it wasn't very long before they were uprooted again this time to go to Egypt to survive a famine. Before long, the few dozen who moved to Egypt became thousands, and the Egyptians captured them and forced them into slavery. And for 400 years they served. And during that time, they grew from thousands into a nation before God brought them out with great signs and wonders and displays of His power. He overwhelmed Pharaoh and his army and led his people out on the way back to the land that He had promised Abram in the very beginning. Moses knows that these people have been wandering without a home for pretty much their whole history, and that it is the Lord Himself who has been their refuge, their dwelling place. 
And those centuries of God's faithfulness are the basis for Moses' hope in the situation that they are currently in. God has been their refuge in ages past, and He will be in the time to come. No matter what happens, God will continue to be faithful. It's why Moses is writing this psalm in the first place and not giving up instead, because he knows that God is faithful even when His people are not But that faithfulness was put to the most difficult test yet when the people arrived at the edge of the land that was to be their home. They heard reports that that land was full of fortified cities, well-trained armies, and even giants. And hearing this, the people absolutely panicked and refused to take another step in the direction that God was leading They even threatened to kill Moses and say that it would be better to choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. From the day that God called Abram to leave his homeland, the people of Israel have been following where he has led them. They have not been perfectly obedient, as anyone who's read any of their history knows. They certainly have not had a good attitude most of the time, but they have kept going. They've put one foot in front of the other and followed where God has led, but there, on the border of the land of promise, something broke. And even though they have seen God do amazing things in the past and overcome fearsome adversaries, display unmatched power, and overwhelm the oppressors that they had in Egypt, they refuse to follow Him a single step further because they think that they will be crushed, annihilated by the armies that they will face in the land. So, in fear of those armies, and in fearless defense, uh, or defiance rather, of God, they turn their backs on Him. They decide that they would rather take their chances defying God than the fortified cities across the river. But God will not relent from keeping His promise to give His people this land. So He tells them that they will wander in the desert until all the people who had seen His power revealed in Egypt are dead. And then He will bring the next generation back to this very spot, and they will receive the land. And it's during that time of wandering that Moses writes Psalm 90. He remembers setting his eyes on the land that would finally fulfill God's promise, the promise that had been handed down from generation to generation for five centuries. He remembers seeing it with his own eyes. They were about to cross in and receive the fulfillment of that promise And he also remembers the devastating moment when the people said, no, we will go our own way. When they doomed themselves to destruction because Moses knows who they have rejected. Like watching a child ignore their parents' warnings and wander into danger, Moses is watching these people seal their own fate when they walk away from God. They fear death at the hands of giants and armies and fortified cities. But Moses knows they are rejecting the one who is actually able to deliver them from death itself. He makes that point in verses 2 through 6 of our psalm, where he describes some of the glories of God, all of which are variations on the same theme. First, simply, he is older than everything else. He's older than the oldest things that everyone can see before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, Moses says. God was already there. Mountains were probably the oldest thing that he could think of other than the earth itself, and he says God made them both. 
ancient doesn't even begin to describe God's existence because He is the maker of the most ancient things that we can imagine. Second, he says that God reigns from everlasting to everlasting. He was not born, and He will never die. He is eternal, truly eternal, without a beginning or an ending. It's such a foreign concept for us that it's hard for us to understand because everything else we've ever known or experienced had a beginning. Everything is explainable. It came from something, and all of it has an ending. It will eventually decay. Even the mountains will crumble, and the sun itself will burn out. But God's glory is revealed in the fact that He was there before time and will be there forever. Third, Moses says that God is unchanged by the passing of time. People, he says, eventually return to dust. But even before that happens, it's easy to see the effect of time in our own lives. I feel that more than I used to in things like how much ibuprofen I go through or when I hear students in our youth group talking about something that I don't have a clue about, I realize that more time has passed uh, than I was paying attention to. But it's not just that we get older, but our personalities and our perspectives and our priorities change over time too. We learn new things and have new experiences, make new friendships and suffer new losses and take on different responsibilities, and all of those things have their effect on us. Some things in life, like maybe moving out on our own or like getting married or becoming a parent, have such a huge impact on us that it's like we become new people in the process. We change a lot over time, but God has always been who He is. We learn new things that change our perspective. He knows everything. He's always known everything. His perspective never changes. We gain strength or influence or power or lose them depending on the circumstances of our lives. He has all power, all strength, forever. He is never less sovereign than He is this minute. Time does not change who He is. Fourth, Moses says that God is not constrained by time, but is master over it. He says, a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night, and you sweep them away as with a flood. God interacts with time in a way that we do not. We are subject to it. We cannot speed it up when we'd like to get through something difficult, and we cannot slow it down to savor seasons of life we wish would never end. In fact, it feels like just the opposite is true. We cannot delay the years coming and the inevitable end drawing nearer. It's a fact that Moses is reminded of every morning when word comes to him that more and more of his rebellious countrymen have died in their tents. He's surrounded, surrounded by death. And he is grieving the fact that these people rejected the one who transcends the passage of time, who death cannot touch. Moses knows who they have rejected and knows what it has cost them to do it. In the middle of the psalm, in verses 7 through 11, though, he grieves over the situation that not just Israel but all of humanity is in, and the fact that time is not our friend. Moses laments the fact that we have put ourselves 
in that situation. We, he includes himself here, are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed, he says in verse 7. The things that Moses has seen play out on the border of the promised land, and then in the years and wandering in the desert, are an echo of the events that took place way back in the Garden of Eden. There, Adam and Eve walked with God and enjoyed freedom in the world that He had made, apart from a single law forbidding them to eat from a certain tree. But when tempted, Adam and Eve took from that tree and ate. They decided that they knew better than God what was right and what was good for them, and in making that choice, they cut themselves off from the author of life. And even though they were made to enjoy God's presence forever, they found themselves outside the garden and suddenly faced with an inevitable reality. Their lives would be full of suffering, and they would end one day. God says that they will struggle and toil until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Seems like Moses has that verse, Genesis 3.19, in his mind as he writes Psalm 90, surrounded by the death of Israel's wilderness wandering. On the day that Adam and Eve rejected God, time became an unstoppable march toward death. And in Moses' day, that story repeated itself. The people turned away from following God again. And as they did, The curse of death followed them eastward into the barren land where they would spend their days in sweat and struggle until eventually it caught up with them. The years of our life, he says, are 70, or by reason of strength, maybe 80, yet their span is full of toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. These are the words of a man who has buried friends who knows firsthand how fleeting life is. Some scholars think that this psalm was written after the events of Numbers chapter 20. That chapter opens with Moses' sister Miriam dying in the wilderness. Afterward, Moses himself disobeys God and is told that he will never get to go into the promised land. Like his sister and hundreds of thousands of others, he will be buried in the desert. And then to cap it off, the chapter ends with the death of Moses' brother Aaron. In these years that are marked by so much sorrow, Numbers 20 surely describes the worst of what Moses experienced and reveals how personally he understood the differences between humanity, plagued as it is by death, and God, who transcends the passage of time. He is grieving, painfully aware how quickly 70 or 80 years go by. Everywhere he looks, he sees that things are fragile and momentary and so easily lost forever. He understands what James will later write in the New Testament, where he says that life is a vapor that exists for just a moment and then vanishes. And Moses also sees with a brand new clarity that the problem of death that humanity is plagued with is ultimately a problem of sin. Time became an enemy and a march toward our inevitable end when humanity rejected the one who is not bound by it. So in the closing of this psalm, verses 12 through 17, Moses turns toward God, and he prays that God would answer the folly of the people with mercy and with a better way forward. Specifically, he asks that God would give them a new perspective, a new pleasure, a new protection, and a new purpose. First, in verse 12, the heading of the prayer 
is Moses' Moses's request that God would give his people a new perspective to help them think differently than they have. He says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. A wise person knows two things. First, that he has rel- relatively few days on this earth. And the second is why. It's interesting that Moses says days rather than years. Thinking about a lifespan in terms of days makes us realize that each one of them is precious and that they pass quickly. So Moses' prayer here is similar to the one in Psalm 39 where David asks that God would let me know how fleeting I am. David asks God in Psalm 39 to help him see reality, to see that life is fleeting, even for those who seem secure, he says in the very next verse. As king, David could have more easily ignored the inevitability of his own impending death one day, trusting in armies to defend him or wealth to provide for all of his needs or even in God's protection of him or by finding distraction in his responsibilities or other pursuits. Well, I think that's part of what Moses is saying here, that he's asking God to help people realize that our days on this earth are few. I think there's more to it than that. He's asking God to show people why. Because the Israelites wandering in the desert, they already know how fleeting life is. That's why they didn't want to go into the promised land in the first place. They were afraid of dying there. They understood very well that life can be tragically short. I think what Moses is asking is that that the people would become wise by considering that they are fragile and finite, but God is not They may live 80 years if they're lucky, but the number of God's years cannot be counted or comprehended. Their days pass in an inexorable journey toward death because, just like their first parents, Adam and Eve, they have rejected the one who cannot be reached by death. In fear, they turn from the one who is able to deliver them from it. But Moses is clear throughout Psalm 90 that it is God's wrath, His judgment, and his righteous anger that these people ought to fear more than fortified cities and armies and even giants. He says, God returns people to dust in verse 3, that we are brought to an end by your anger, that every secret sin is revealed in God's presence, and that God's wrath pervades the lives of these people. And in verse 11, he says, that, understanding that, those things, is what is missing from people's understanding of life. That is why they are not wise. That is the perspective they need to become wise. That it is because of sin and God's righteous judgment that death is inescapable. That the new perspective that Moses asks that God would give these people is one that sees that reality. That makes them humble before God and aware of their need for mercy. He expresses that humility himself in verse 13 saying, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Simple prayer for a man in grief. That humility prepares these people for the second thing that Moses asks, that God would give them a new pleasure. Surely one of the harshest things that these people have said at various points on their journey is that they would rather be back in Egypt. At one point, they complained that they're just going to die of hunger and that at least back in Egypt, they had plenty of food to eat. It doesn't matter to them that they were slaves there and that their Egyptian rulers were wicked. For them, the best-case scenario here is mere survival, even if that means going back to slavery. 
They cannot imagine anything, any, any experience that would be better than that. Just surviving is the goal. But Moses prays that they will experience a better joy than just surviving. Joy that comes from experiencing God's covenant-keeping love for them. Love that never gives up, is never broken, and which overcomes their faithless and fearful habits. Satisfy us in the morning, he says, with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. That is not settling for mere survival. He's asking for everlasting joy, joy that will continue for all our days. It is joy that comes from the realization that they need mercy, that they desperately need it, that their only hope, their only hope of survival in, in, in the face of the inevitable arrival of death is not found anywhere but in God's willingness to be kind to people who do not deserve kindness, and then in finding that God provides it with abundance. It is a joy that's rooted in who God is in His unchanging covenant-keeping heart. So Moses prays that God will give them satisfaction and pleasure, not just in avoiding a confrontation with a fortified city in Canaan, but by knowing that they have been shown this grace. Third, Moses prays that the people would have a new protection. Let your work be shown to your servants, he says, and your glorious power to their children. The problem that the people have is that they believe that they are safer in turning back from following God into the land that is filled with giants. They have no weapons. They have no armor. They are not trained as fighters. They have lived the last four centuries as servants. They cannot imagine going to war. So they decide to turn around, thinking that is how they will protect themselves. But Moses knows what two later biblical examples will prove. When the prophet Daniel refused to pray to the king of Babylon, he was thrown into a den of lions as a form of execution. The lions ought to have devoured him, but in the morning he is found alive and unharmed. Afterward, he is lifted up out of the pit and he says, no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted God. But things went very differently for another of God's prophets, Jonah, who wanted nothing to do with the direction that God was leading. He ran in the opposite direction, booking a passage across the sea, but that very night, a vicious storm threatened to sink the ship that he was on to the point that he is ultimately cast overboard and then is swallowed by a giant fish. The people of Israel wanted safety, and they thought the best way that they could assure their safety was avoiding a war with the people of Canaan. But it is safer to be in the lion's den, if that is where God leads, than anywhere else on planet earth. Moses wants them to remember the works of God that they have seen with their own eyes, the power that they have seen Him display. When He sent plagues to Egypt, when He dried up the Red Sea and made a highway for them to cross, He wants them to remember how God provided food and water for them in the desert on their journey and how He has proven His providential care and the way that it will not be defeated or dismayed by the armies that they will one day face, and that the safest thing for them to do is to follow where God leads them. Fourth, Moses prays for a new purpose for these people, that God would establish the work of their hands. He drives home that point by saying it twice. Right now, the instinct that is driving them is survival. 
They just don't want to die. It's an impulse that we can relate to, of course. Death is an enemy for those who are created in the image of the living God. But when it does eventually come for all of these people, the most that they'll be able to say as they look back on their lives is that they managed to not die for 70 or 80 years. That will be their crowning achievement. And it will quickly be overshadowed by death's victory. The thing that they spent their lives on will vanish. So he prays that God would make their lives count for something more than that. That the work of their hands, the things they strive for and spend their days on would be established and made secure, that they would be made to last. And that the impact of their lives would ring ring out through eternity, established by God who reigns from everlasting to everlasting. Moses wants them to build their lives on following and enjoying and proclaiming the glories of God because those are the things that will last. Everything else will crumble. It's a point that Jesus reiterated 1,400 years later in Matthew chapter 6 where he told a crowd that the treasures of this world will return to dust one day along with everything else. But treasures in heaven, knowing and rejoicing in God's glory, are those that neither moth nor rust destroy and which thieves do not break in and steal. The one who was there before anything else, who has no ending, who is unchanged by the passage of time, and who is not constrained by time, rules over it. These people have rejected that God, the one who remains faithful to them, and will see his promise through, whose covenant-keeping love is steadfast. For God's people, he is the one thing that is actually worth building our lives on, Everything else, everything else that we might give our days to demands life. It takes time from us. He alone can give it. In the coming of His Son, God pours out the mercy that the world needed to experience the life that we were made for. The one who made life laid His aside so that rebels and sinners could be set free from the unstoppable march toward death. This God is worth the number of our days. That is both a challenge to me and an encouragement. It is a challenge to me because I know, I know better than anyone, that I often don't steward my days well. I am often stuck in the mindset that those ancient Israelites had. I I fear going where God will lead because it means leaving my comfort zone. So I'm tempted to go my own way. This passage convicts me of that tendency and leads me to pray along with Moses, Lord, establish the work of my hands. Lead me and work through my life in a way that will make an eternal difference. But this passage also is an encouragement to me because it reminds me that success in that endeavor rests on God's shoulders, not on mine. When I stand up to preach, it is with a hope and prayer that God's people will be edified and convicted and stirred to worship. And that ultimately there will be eternal fruit that comes from this labor. But it is a great relief to me that God is the one who will establish the work of my hands. He is the one who will bring about that fruit. And the same is true when it comes to sharing the gospel with our neighbors. When it comes to discipling our children or our work to see justice done and to serve those who are in need and every other thing that God calls us to do. This is work that can make an eternal difference. And we give our days to that work in the confident hope that God will make it fruitful. 
Psalm 90 is a good reminder to all of us that life is short. Therefore, we should make the most of it. It helps us to have that new perspective that Moses prayed for, humble before God and acknowledging that we have sinned just like the people of Israel did and our first parents did, Adam and Eve. It helps us to reflect on and rejoice in the mercies of God for us, that He is our dwelling place despite our folly. It helps us to remember that the safest place to be on planet earth is wherever He leads us, and it compels us to take stock of the number of our days and how we are using them. What are we giving our lives for? And rather than being discouraged by how fleeting life is, we are reminded that there is one whose existence cannot be measured in days or in years or in millennia. And in mercy, He has offered us freedom from the curse of death and judgment. And He is worth every one of the few days that we have in this life. Let's pray together. Father, as we look to You this morning, it is with eyes wide open to the fact that our time in this world is short. So we pray that You would help us to have new perspective that is shaped by the gospel, that you would give us new pleasure in joyfully receiving your mercy, that you would give us new protection that is confident in your sovereign care for us, and that we cannot be robbed of a single day that you have appointed for us, and that you would give us new purpose, the freedom to live our lives for your glory. We pray according to the riches of your mercy and in the name of your Son. Amen.